Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, Valentine's Day is right around the corner, and we're serving up a whole lot of love in our new issue. But first, I had the chance to speak to Blake Barris, who just returned to do a fun little stint on days as basically Satan's secretary in the story with Marlena, Kayla, and Kate. I mentioned to Blake that he started at days as Nick Fallon 17 years ago, and that kind of blew his mind. But he says that he loves what head writer Ron Carlovati and his staff have done to bring Nick back, and he gets a kick out of the scripts and seeing what he's going to do next. So the last time I spoke to Blake was in 2020, and he had one son, Lear. He's added a set of twin boys, Nisha and Bo, to the mix, so he's been busy both on screen and off. Um, And he is still hard at work on Fangirl, a movie that takes place in the soap world. Uh, You know, Blake said to me he calls it a reconciliation of sorts to his early soap days, where he battled with his identity um, of just being on a soap, and he had much more angst about it than he does today. Um, And now, like, looking back, he has a very different perspective. He loves being there. Not that he didn't love being there the first time, but he just has a more sort of open mind about it and would also be open to returning to days in the future for more visits. Well, I think that's great to hear. You know, I think he's a superb villain on that canvas, even though he's dead. And it's a treat, uh, you know, to see him again. Now, our cover story this week focuses on the Curtis Porsche wedding that is scheduled to take place on General Hospital. As viewers uh, know, there are, you know, some things that could possibly go very wrong. <laughs> uh, chief among them, the fact that the bride has been keeping a humongous secret from the groom, which is that he might possibly be the father of her teenage daughter, Trina. Now, if the truth were to come out, it would have huge ramifications, not only for Curtis and Portia's relationship, but for Taggart and Portia's, Trina's and Portia's, Trina and Curtis's. The list goes on. So uh, my strong advice would be if you're into soapy wedding fireworks, make sure not to miss GH next week. Hmm. And uh, also in keeping with the Valentine's Day theme, we've got a joint interview with one of the most popular duos on GH, Vanola Hughes and James Patrick Stewart, who play Anna and Valentine, a.k.a. Vanna. Now, I actually did this interview with them over Zoom. And it was so fun to not only sort of, you know, dissect their dynamic as scene partners and the interpersonal dynamics of their characters, but at the start of the Zoom, Fanola was like, Mara, if it's okay, can I just talk to James about something that happened at work today? And I was like, of course. And I basically just got to bear witness to the kinds of conversations that they have about their scenes. You know, basically in this instance, there had been a moment uh, in something they'd shot that Fanola felt could have been better. And she had an idea about what they could do in the future to make a moment 
similar to the one in question, more successful. And to be a fly on that wall was so interesting. You know, they are both so insightful and intelligent in their approach to their work. And it was very obvious to me how deeply and genuinely they care about making their scenes the best they could possibly be. So that was a bonus for me as their interviewer. And uh, I hope all the Vanna fans will pick up a copy. Well, I love that all so much. I love that you just got to sit in on that conversation and mm-hmm. it is such a great piece. So for sure, Vanna fans and any fans should check it out. <laughs> um, also in the new issue, we have an interview with Daisy's Wally Kurth, who plays Justin and Judy Evans, who plays Bonnie. And they discuss their 35 plus years of working together. Uh, you know, they've certainly been through a lot together over the decades and their bond is evident in this piece. Um, now, speaking of actors we got to speak to, I had the good occasion to be on the phone with Peter Bergman for an interview for Young and Restless's upcoming 50th anniversary, and we got around to discussing Jack's current storyline. So during the conversation, he pointed out that the reason Jack has so much forgiveness for Diane is because, you know, Jack himself spent his life wishing for a family unit after Dina left them, and here's Jack's opportunity to get that to Kyle. But also, he said, Jack is someone who screwed up a lot in his life, and he was forgiven, and he wants to do the same for Diane. And what I thought was so interesting is that I've received so many emails from fans who are upset that Jack is being duped by her or that his character's weak for forgiving her. But when Peter explained it, it made perfect sense, which I so appreciated. So we included it in the new issue in our quick take section, which thank you, Mara, who came up with that idea for a feature a couple of years ago. It really is a great opportunity to give the actors a chance to give insight into a story. Yeah, I am a sucker for a quick take. You know, uh, often when we get Uh, an actor on the phone to like preview a certain week of story, for instance. It it also becomes an opportunity to just gab about the implications to their character of what's happening and to get their thoughts on storyline beats that preceded the week in question. And from the very first day I started reading Soap Opera Digest back in the 80s, I was always interested in what the actors thought about, you know, what their characters were going through and, and to hear their opinions on story twists and so forth. And that has continued to this day which is probably not only why I like writing quick takes and reading quick takes, but why I love doing this podcast so much. (laughs) Well, me too. And our guest today is someone who I'm very interested in hearing stories from. It's Corbin Bernson, who has appeared on Soaps, Primetime, and is the son of Young and Restless's most beloved actors, the late Gene Cooper. So let's check in with him and see what he's up to now. Hi, Corbin. Hi. Morning. How are you doing? Morning. Good, day, good afternoon, whatever time somebody is listening to this. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I, um, yeah, actually, I've learned to say wonderful. I, you know, a lot of interesting things in life, a few friends passing recently. So I'd rather wake up and say, I'm doing wonderful. Um, there, you know, okay. not to start off too heavy, but, uh, Uh, You started off honest and we appreciate it. You will get nothing but honest from me. I (laughs) I don't know how. It's why I've been married for 34 years. I could never lie. (laughs) I stayed ahead of that game and just stayed faithful. Well, Corbin, we're going to go back to the beginning. You were born in Hollywood into a Hollywood family. Your father, Harry, was a producer and a talent agent. And your mother, Jean Cooper, was, of course, an actress with a prolific career even before she was cast in her signature role, Catherine Chancellor on The Young and the Restless. So she's such a legend in the daytime world. But to you, she was mom and you were the oldest of her three. So tell us a little bit about what life was like in your household and what you were like as a boy. Well, um, not to jump ahead to when you watch this docuseries, which we're going to talk about, but I saw photos in there and things that people picked out for me, they found that reminded me 
um, uh, of it took me back to a time that I'd sort of forgotten that, you know, my life sort of came into existence when my brother and my sister were born and we became this family that we became of five of us. But there was this period of time before that I was with my mother and my father. And it was, you know, I guess looking back now, I, it was very Ozzy and Harriet, the cars, the, you know, the, the mom and dad who loved you, the pony rides and all of that. Um, life was, is, I'm reading a lot about this because I'm 68 and I'm really fascinated with that period of time in our history, uh, the fifties into the sixties, which became my youth, if you will. And I very much remember what I believe the world was, which was this, I always look at this, uh, uh, period of time is post-World War II, where everybody was celebrating. We won for once. We won right? We were united. Uh, we did a good thing. We, we, you know, uh, we, we did in Europe in World War II was a good thing. It was a good thing globally. And we were very proud as a nation and we expanded, right? Two cars in every garage and expanded quickly, <laughs> maybe a little too quickly. We can get into that later, but, um, but it was, life was wonderful. You know, it was just very typical. I was very blessed that, and I feel the same way about me with my kids, my mom was big and famous. We all know who she was, and she was a legend. My father was not quite as famous as and big as he probably would have liked to have been. But we maintained a very healthy, normal family uh, lifestyle. My mother, God bless her, doing all those roles you talked about before, The Young and the Restless, you know, Ben Casey and and uh, the Big Valley and all these even movies before that. She would come home, and I remember she made dinner. You know, she put dinner on the table and we sat there at the table and we talked. She was wonderful about that. And we had a very wonderful, open, full, you know, typical family life. And then uh, and then the 60s happened. <laughs> well, I, this is not the 60s. It's the early 70s. But do you remember when your mother first joined YNR and did you watch her on the oh, show? Oh, very specifically. Yeah. We were, and I just came back uh, from Hawaii. We were on a trip to Hawaii. I think it was my brother, my sister and I, my mom. And she got the call. Now she's at this point, she's what, 40 or so. And, you know, she had, she'd really given up her acting career to raise a family, if you will. And she started to have some of the troubles that are pretty much, you know, we know about that we can talk about later um, uh, for whatever reason, however it, you know, found her way to it. Um, but uh, we were in Hawaii and she got a call about this soap opera, The Young and the Restless. And I think as any actor will say, who's been established, like, ooh, do I really, I'm, is that what I'm doing? I'm going to go back into a soap opera, which was, and still continues to be for all very wrong reasons and for no good reason at all you know, second-class citizen to everything else, you know, just above commercials, I guess. Um, but, uh, and again, I want to repeat for no good reason, because some of the most extraordinary acting, storytelling, wonderful people involved in soap operas. But she thought, like, do I want to do this? I remember her asking us, and I remember all of us saying, you're 40 years old, you've given up much of your career for us. We're kind of on our feet now. You know, this seems like an opportunity to do it for a couple of years, you know, <laughs> and it was a gig. And, you know, when you're an actor, a gig's a gig's a gig. And, you know, actresses, especially now it's a little different. But, you know, by the time you hit 40, you were not the young ingenue anymore. So she took it. And um, the rest is 
history, as we'll say. Indeed. Now, you went to Beverly Hills High School. Uh, did you do plays there? Were you involved in the arts? No, no, I was I was into sports. Um, not at all. In fact, that sort of reflected where I was at because my mother had been doing the soap. My father was an agent and then I became a producer and we had money. Then we, we, I grew up in Beverly Hills, as you say. I grew up, I like to say, poor in Beverly Hills. Now, relative poor, you know, meaning all my friends had Porsches for their 16th birthday and brand new cars and big two-story houses with swimming pools. And we were kind of on the edge of just being able to maintain this Beverly Hills lifestyle, which I think was my father's thing. It wasn't really my mother. She was very, she's cool and groovy. She could have probably been at Topanga Canyon, Laurel Canyon. Didn't matter to her. Family was what mattered. My dad was all about appearances. Money came, money went and all that. And I, as much as I younger wanted to be an actor. I saw the play Oliver and in New York. And when I was nine, I thought that's what I want to do. By the time I was like 13 or 14, I said, I don't want anything to do with any of this. I saw what it was doing to my mother's, her, her, her life, you know, her started drinking my father, this car. We literally, I remember we'd have a brand new car in the driveway. And like two weeks later, it was repossessed or like a month later, it was like, well, there goes the Lincoln continental. Wow, that's a great car. Where'd it go? Uh, my mother would always try to hide from us. They'd have been repossessed. Um, she wanted to not let us in on the dirty secret. So I wanted nothing to do with it um, at the beginning. Uh, and reflective, going to your, see, see, I told you, I'm, I, I don't have short answers. Going to high school, that was this period. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I was an athlete. And that was my thing. Athlete and burgeoning, you know, hippie, um, although the athletics kind of kept me at bay, at least during high school. Uh, and um, not that anything against it, you know, it just, it it didn't seem to be Beverly Hills High, uh, even though we had notable people, Richard Dreyfus, other people coming out of Beverly High, it wasn't like an art school where it was so popped out, that's what you should go do. But I played football and baseball and wrestled. Well, when you went to college at UCLA, you wound up with two degrees, a degree in theater arts and a master's in playwriting. But originally you set out to study law. So you right. made the pivot there. How did right. how did it get you, Corbin? Well, I um, I was uh, I was doing, I guess, my major in philosophy. Uh, I started at Humboldt State College up north in California. It was a little too much hippie for me. We'll just use those <laughs> words to mean everything you might think. Okay. Uh, I went to San Diego State and continued that, and that was a beach version of woods woodsy kind of hippies down there. And I was in my second year of college because I had transferred then one year up north. And my father was producing a little movie called Three the Hard Way, um, one of the first black exploitation films and probably one of the more notable things that he did in his career. Brave getting out there and exploring, you know, uh, um, African-American culture and film and all that. And um, he said, we'd like, you know, would you like to call me up in San Diego and said, would you like to have a little part in this movie I'm doing? And I said, well, what is it? And he sort of read that it was the very opening of the movie and it says a pair of naked young limbs thrashing in the backseat of a Rolls Royce and Jim Brown will come and find you. The football player will come and find you and, and then try to take your car or something like that. And I said, you had me at naked young limbs thrashing in the backseat of a Rolls Royce. Um, who is this girl? She said, we, we hired a very beautiful. I said, great. Okay. What else? He says, well, we'd also like to buy your Camaro 
which is a car, my prize. You know, I was trying to keep up with the Joneses who had Porsches and everything. I had this old Camaro. He said, because we're going to blow it up in the movie. I said, okay, what do I get? So we'll give you the production van afterward. Long story short, I get there to the set. I make out with this girl. It ended up being in a sleeping bag, not in the backseat of a Rolls Royce. Making out with a girl, I'm what, like 19 or something, 18? <laughs> like, great. He takes my car. I see it later in the night. They actually do it that night. They blow it up cool and hand me the keys to the production van and i went like that's it i'm an actor <laughs> this is and this is that's an honest to god story i mean i know you know it, it when you look back you sort of condense these stories um and i went to my mother though and i said that's it i want to be an actor i want to do what you do and she said corbin my mother god bless her every moment of every breath i take she said um okay well i you can do whatever you want i love you I said, look, I'm going to go to UCLA. I've already checked in. They've got an acting program on it. She goes, you do whatever you want, but it's important about the UCLA because she said, you, if you want my blessing, you have my okay, but if you want my blessing as an actor to an actor, you're going to go study. And I want you to study and learn your craft. And don't just think it's for girls or money or you're a cute guy and all these things. You're going to learn the craft. If you want my blessing, you'll do whatever you want. I love you. I'll support you however I can. I went to UCLA, enrolled in there, and it was only years, years later that I understood what she meant, like the blessing was not just that as an actor, she didn't want just another pretty face to come in and be another actor. She wanted me to build this love for what I do. And that is, I can tell you, and I'll tell every TikTok star out there listening to this, you know, you can do your TikTok two minutes. You don't even get 15 minutes anymore. Andy Warhol was generous. You get your... <laughs> 30 seconds, literally. And unless you have a love for what you do, there's going to be down times. And, you know, my mother was down. Then she got young and the restless. The thing that made her stay in the game was that she loved what she did. And that's what I learned as much as I learned acting skills and technique. And um, so I enrolled in UCLA, had a, a glorious time. I did everything. I wrote little one act plays and I acted. And then I tried to enroll in the master's acting program and they wouldn't have me. Ha ha. Mm -hmm. My face, but I know you can only hear me. Imagine me going, ha ha. Uh, <laughs> they wouldn't have me because I wasn't a, I wasn't like a song and dance in college, you know, college theaters a bit. Oklahoma. That was not. <laughs> um, and so I had a wonderful guy named Carl Mueller. Uh, who is the head of the playwriting program, said, look, you wrote a couple of one-act plays. They were very good. Why don't you come and learn how to write plays? And uh, probably one of the finer choices I've made in my life, besides marrying my wife, uh, is joining the playwriting program because it did also what my mom wanted to give me a deep love for actually storytelling, you know, but it also taught me about character and, and action and place and time and all those wonderful things that are elements of story. And, um, that was my, um, took me seven years to get through it all, but I did it. Wow. That's impressive. So when you got out of school, you worked in the LA theater scene, both as an actor and a set designer, and eventually you made your way to New York. So tell us what stands out to you about making the move to New York and trying to establish your career there. I was in LA and I was at UCLA and I was doing, I had a, there was a woman who was directing a play. In fact, as I Again, it's funny, our recall as we get older, and I think this is accurate. So I put that in, I qualify it in front of it. But um, there was a play, a wonderful play called American Buffalo, uh, David Mamet. And uh, one of our teachers 
was directing it at a small theater in LA. And I actually did the set. I love set design. I still love set design. The love. My father produced a play called The Turn of Magic. Look it up one day. It's out of Czechoslovakia. It's a, it's a theater company. Incredible sets, visuals, audio, all that stuff. And I was really, I liked it. Like I liked rock and roll for its, its spectacle. Um, you know, I love spectacle in that way. And uh, I designed the set for American Buffalo. And I think it was the original West Coast production. Somewhere I saw myself credited with that. Um, but I was going out with a girl um, named Heather Thomas, who was on a, uh, we were college sweethearts, loving my life. And uh, she got a little part in a TV series. Um, there was a kind of, I think all the networks did a, a version of Animal House when that movie came out, John Belushi, Ecology, kind of, you know, she did that. That didn't go very far, but then she got The Fall Guy, big TV series with May, Lee Majors, basically went off on the Hollywood path. And, uh, you know, she didn't, but it broke my heart that we weren't together anymore. I got in this, there used to be the service where you could, you could take people's car. I went, to New- I went to New York with my mother for like two weeks. She had to do a press tour or something for Young Restless. And I went to New York and said, this is it. This is where I want to be. This will mend my broken heart. This will be great. I went back home, got this Cadillac from these couple, this couple in Palm Springs who lived in New Jersey. There used to be the service where you could like take their car and drive it for them across the country. Got in there, stuffed as much stuff as I could. I remember the teddy bear that I actually got a teddy bear in wrote a little note to Heather in it. I love you forever and cut it open and sewed it back up and put it by the, it was always inside there. And then when we kind of split up, I kind of, I kind of took the teddy bear. Repossessed the teddy bear. I repossessed the teddy bear. And I will tell you, I literally, if I was a country and Western star, it'd been great because I could have written songs. I cried for 3000 miles. I was heartbroken not really at her she was off on her thing and doing her thing maybe i was upset because she took off and all that but you know but um i was heartbroken that it didn't go where i thought our this college sweetheart relationship would go i drove three thousand miles got to new york found a wonderful coach there did a, i'd say did a year of broken-hearted 1980s early 1970 late 70s 80s have some fun um there's quite a scene in new york um and uh, and one day I was I was working with my acting coach, and I had a great coach there named Bob McAndrew. He's still coaching. I can't believe he's in his eighties now. It's funny I talked to him the other day, and um, I'd been out all night drinking and doing pretending, you know, hanging out with all the rich and famous, not all the famous people, not even rich, just all the cool people in New York. I came in really, really just still drunk, I guess, not even over. And he pulls me aside and takes me into this little room that was our prop room of our acting class. He goes, Corbin, you're going to have to make a choice. Do you want to be an actor or do you want to pretend to be an actor? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you can't come in here like this. This is where you work. This is what we do in here. And you're hanging out all night. I know what you're doing. I get it, man. I get all the fun and hanging out. And he said, if you want to be an actor, he said, I believe you have the talent, but you're going to have to make a choice right now. Do you want to be an actor or pretend to be an actor? So like my mother, in a strange way, the same thing. And uh, from that point forward, I, I'm i not saying I cleaned up my life perfectly at that point, but um, I sort of separated uh, the two of having fun and you know learning and continuing my craft. And and so New York was launched. 
there for three or four years. And Stephen Bochco shows up in New York with Greg Hoblett and Terry Louise Fisher. I had a deal at NBC because of a pilot that I almost got, but I didn't. They put me under contract and said, this is the one for you, L.A. Law. Well, before we delve into L.A. Law, I, I probably know. went too far for you Why for you? your question. No, no, right? no. Got to reel it back a little bit. No, you don't have to reel it back. It's just that we're soap opera digest. So we need to hear about oh. you playing Ken Graham right. on Ryan's Hope. Happy almost 40th anniversary this June of your debut on Ryan's Hope. Right, right. So sorry. I didn't. Yes, you are soap opera <laughs> digest. How silly of me. Well, I always kept my foot. Look, I always kept my foot in the door of the soap opera world. I mean, um, you know, uh, there were a couple of brief wanted romances with people that were on the young and the restless who shall rename name name remain nameless um you know and uh uh so i was i was i mean uh, look i was into the world because my mother was in there in a deeper way than just sort of like well there's beautiful girls on soap operas sure i'll go to your young and restless party with you no problem <laughs> um but more meaningfully i uh um uh, more meaningfully i when I got to New York, I, you know, auditioned for uh, a role. Um, what was his name? Detective David Cedarholm got. And the people, um, Joe Hardy, who was the producer at the time of uh, of uh, Ryan's Hope, uh, really liked me, but didn't give me this part. But he said, I'll tell you what, we're going to create a role of Ken Graham, who's the sidekick of, um, gosh, what was his name? I can't remember the character's name. Um, David Cedarholm played him anyway. So I was a psychic. I'm the one who always had to bring information about Mark Helgenberger, Siobhan. Mm-hmm. Like, she's this. She wants to tell you that. And I was this sort of go-between character. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, I had some fun there. I, I you know, it, hey, first of all, I think I was making like 500 bucks a week guaranteed. Great. That's good. Just enough to get by and not have to get a job bartending or something. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. I'm going to have a quick sip of a drink here. And um, I had some fun, but one of my favorite stories from that is there was a wonderful actor in the world, Heinemann, Henman, Heinemann, how do you pronounce his name? I forget. Um, character actor, he's now passed. He used to go out and show up a little bit drunk in the mornings. And one morning I come in there and I find him sitting in this lobby where we all had to go with the security guard would wait to open up the stage doors, you know, until it was time to open up. And so I'm passed out in there and I went, Earl, Earl, get up, man, before anybody shows up. You know, having New York was crazy during these times. And the, and uh, Earl uh, just wakes up and goes, oh, where am I, man, where am I? What am I doing? What? I said, and he looks at me, he goes, I said, he said, oh, good, thanks. And he goes, where's my car? <laughs> I remember him saying, where's my car? But uh, yeah, he, and he pulled it together. He's one, he could pull it together. He's one of these guys, like the old school guys who could do all that and then throw some water on his face and be this character actor that he was uh, like the best of them, you know, and he isn't the first and won't be the last, but um, we used to play this game. I can say it now because so much time has passed where if you know, there, there was a big party scene. Um, it was pretty boring to be Ken Graham and be the character he was. <laughs> basically, you're kind of you're you're being paid, so we're going to put you in there as background, basically. And it would be like, okay, across for sandwiches here, and there's 20 other people in a room. I remember there's one party scene, and you know, soap opera sets. There's three walls, right? Because the front ones where the camera, the fourth wall is gone because of cameras. The two side walls, and every wall had doors in it, and you go outside the door, and you're in the sound stage, you know, basically. He and I used to play this game of see how many shots we could get in 
during a particular scene. So if like if I knew the camera was on so and so in the foreground up here, I would be in the background over here eating a sandwich or something. <laughs> and then the camera would go to that person over there. I'd go out a door and I'd somehow appear on the other door and come in behind somebody drinking a champagne glass. And he and I would do these things where like this is impossible to be in these seven different places. Um, like seven different places there totally appropriate for me to be background. That, uh, <laughs> and that was my, you know, but yeah, no, but that was a great, you know, again, uh, it's a, it, so many actors will tell you that soap operas are a great breeding ground, um, you know, for training ground, not breeding ground, oh, they're, they're a breeding ground too. <laughs> uh, but they're a good training ground. Um, and then I also did as the world turns, I did search for tomorrow. I had, you know, little bits in all these different shows and, which I was, you know, I felt really proud because I was kind of following my mother's footsteps. But I was also happy that I knew I wanted more. I hadn't had my shot like my mother had had early in her life. So I wanted a little bit more than that. You know, I wanted, I wanted to, I was aiming laterally. I won't say higher. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it kept me going. It kept me going. And I would tell you, and to this day, look, I went back and I'm sure you'll bring this in somewhere. I think in the middle of everything, I went and did GH for a mm -hmm. year and a half, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to say that if the right thing didn't come along that I would go, I did something. In, well, do you want to talk about GH later? Do you want to go in progression here? I'll wait, but, <laughs> yes. okay. but it was okay. a great thing. And then I got LA law. And the important thing was I just stayed tuned. Yeah. If you will. So as you mentioned, you were cast on L.A. Law, where you played divorce lawyer and ladies man Arnie Becker. So not that many people have the experience of starring on a show that becomes as huge a hit as that show did. So if you could even put into words, how did L.A. Law change your life? Well, I mean, as one would imagine, you're, you've got to, the thing that to keep in perspective about all that is um, at the time of L.A. Law, there were only three networks. Right. Yeah, you know, there are only 27 shows on the air, you know, nine shows a, a, a week on the different network. I mean, they're, you know, with original programming, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock shows. And so three a night for five, you know, 15, whatever. There were not that many shows on the network. And Fox came along while we were there. I mean, The Simpsons, Married with Children. I was working with Ed O'Neill recently, and we talked about that. Just that all started to happen while L.A. Law was happening. Uh, so when you're on the big show, as happens now, whether it's you name them, they come up every other day now. Right. Um, but you're on the big show. You're on the big show. You're on a big stage. And it um, it it. It was very big, very quick, making more money than I'd ever made. I actually felt, I felt a little strange. Always around my mom because my dad loved it. It was like, what are you doing? My, my father's always, what's next? What's more? I said, dad, can I just be happy doing this? He wanted more. He was like the forever the agent, you know, my mom, I always felt a little bit ashamed because I was doing kind of her dream a little bit and we never really talked about it. And I'm not even sure if she felt that, but, uh, I always felt a little bit. And then, of course, we had my mom on the uh, playing my mother. Uh, she played my mother, Arnie's mother, which was just great. That was a wonderful Stephen wrote her in. Uh, but it was quite an experience. And I'll tell you, the first year again, you know, new money, all this stuff. I went out and lived the life. I did it all, uh, literally. And um, and I remember my sister this time 
funny. I've had these people that said, I've never really thought about it in this way. And it's nice we have the time to talk about it. My sister who was working for me, with me, well, for me as my assistant secretary, fan mail and stuff and planning and all these things. So I gave her this gig of like being my assistant, if you will. And I remember sitting in this little place I had up in Lowell Canyon and she came in one day. She needs, she said, you need to chill out. You need to get serious. You got to stop doing all this nonsense, all this crazy stuff. Cause I would be like, why can't I, you know, it's like, why don't I have a table? Why don't I, why are you, what do you mean it's not first class? What are, blah, 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 all this stuff. And again, I had somebody in my life say, chill out, stop, stop now. And I'll always credit her for that. And, um, you know, and I again had to go, oh, oh, be reminded. It's all about the work. Greg Hoblet, who is a wonderful director, he lives up near me now up here and he lives in Connecticut, but he uh, he directed the pilot of L.A. Law. And um, he always said to me, make it about the work, make it about the work, always make it about the work. You can have all the other stuff, but make it about the work. And that's what my sister said. And that's what my Bob McAndrew said in that class and what my mother basically said, make it about the work. And so I was reminded again. And then a short time later, I meet my wife um, through... That was another whole story. She was she was sort of a hot item herself in Hollywood those days. So uh, she was doing the show Max Headroom. Blew me off at first. I chased her. First time I ever went to a therapist in my life because I was so... I had a date with her one night on a Friday night, and we were working late. Friday nights were late nights, you know, because if you didn't finish the week, you kept pushing. And we had a new director and no cell phones. And I had a date with her to go have a restaurant nearby. I thought, surely I'll be done by 8 o'clock. 8, 7.30, And this director just kept wanting different shots, this new director. And I put my hand to a wall, to a set wall. And I said, I think we're done. You know, because I had a date with my wife, who was, it was my turn, whoever else she was dating. Uh, you know, it was my night. And I really fell up head over heels for her. And um, they called me on a Monday and said, um, Corbin, <laughs> another time, Corbin. <laughs> you can't do this. You can't do this, you know? Oh, okay. Uh, and yet again, I was reminded you can't do this. And so my manager said, I wanted you to go see a therapist. You got to like get this girl, like you got to put it in perspective. And I went and saw this woman and, uh, she, I thought like, well, with all due respect, she was so, so much, she seemed so much more messed up than I ever could. <laughs> she was one of those therapists who became a therapist because she needed to be a therapist to just deal with her stuff. But that said, the two parts of that experience were enough. Like, okay. I sat back and just waited. And then, you know, it ended up 35 years later here with my wife. So, um, and uh, I don't think I've had a lot more Corbin chill out moments, but <laughs> I think that point when you get to your wife and you get your family and you get that going, you start to slip into a different, it's funny, I'm outlining the autobiography that I've never thought about writing. We're kind of <laughs> outlining it right now. Like I like complete. I'd like a absolute print version of this when you're done <laughs> because this just might be the outline. No problem on it. Corbin, chill out. That's the that's gonna be, chill out. That's going to be the uh, the title. We're we're making it all happen here. That's chill brilliant. Out. That is brilliant. Like you guys um, can write it for me, please help me. With all right. Stuff. Okay. I, I we're think free. We're, we're we're both on board to ghostwrite. Okay, great. Um. Okay, so just going to quickly encapsulate a couple of things that happen in the in the aftermath or, or in the mix of the LA Law juggernaut, which is hosting Saturday Night Live. I watched your monologue this morning, by the way, and got quite the giggle. Um, and a film career. 
uh, that we should not fail to mention movies like Hello Again, which I think I rented 17 weeks in a row. (laughs) And uh, somebody else said that the other day to me. And I thought like, wow, I thought that film never. I have some stories about that, but go ahead. (laughs) Um, uh, The Major League series. I mean, like, you know, you, you name it. You did it. Um, so the, just skipping ahead a, a bit again, here we are. We're so buffer digest. You wind up doing, uh, before general hospital, some appearances on the young and the restless playing father, Todd Williams, Paul's oh, right. brother. Uh, and you would appear on the show multiple times over the, over the right. course of over a decade. So what was it like working at your mom's home away from home? Uh, that was wonderful. I want to. I do have to tell you one story about Hello Again. Oh yeah, tell was us. My first film out of like after you know, not it was during you know it did when you're on a TV series all of a sudden you can be in our films and Disney was big at the time and they hired me to be in this movie with Shelley Long and Gabriel Byrne, and we were in the first week of filming and. I had played L.A. law character so much that I decided in this character I was going to slick my hair back. And Celia Ward, who I was studying that acting class where I told you this guy, Bob McAndrew, we were it was a, she was sort of getting big. And so it was great because she and I got to work together in a film and I slicked my hair back like this and put the suit on and played a different guy. I didn't want to be a LA law character. And the guys from Disney come up during lunch. They're pissed at everybody. Shelly's this, that, this, do this. I wonder where to is. He points at me, he goes, you, I want you to look like LA law. And I went, Oh, <laughs> and so I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they reshot all all that stuff to wow. like, where I just had to go look like the guy from LA law. Not like a, anyway. Um, Yes, going so yes, and then Major League was great, and all that's wonderful, and and uh, I was I don't know how it was. I always expressed that I would like to do it. I don't know if it was to one of the Bells or whoever was running the show, Ed Scott at that point. But we were all friends. I say we went to Christmas. I went like I said. I you know even after I got married, you know uh, obviously uh, I still went to Christmas parties and all that stuff. And this role of Father Todd came up, and. Um, and I I thought, what a wonderful thing at this point in my career. See, my career has never been about, I've got to get bigger and say no to this so I can get to this and then I can get to that. I've never been about that. Maybe everybody wants it and you want it to grow, but I've always been, I don't want to just call it an experimenter, but this will get toward the end of our conversation about follow your path, which gets to this journey of faith that I did. And it really comes from my mother. You know, it's just, you just follow your path. And this opportunity came up and I'm not one who's, when I saw my wife, I said her, you're not like, Hmm, hmm I got to wait uh, maybe a couple more years. No, it's like her, let's get married. Let's have babies and start, you know, I'm not a, I don't, I don't sit in a clothing store and go, Hmm, hmm that one, that one, you know, I just do it. Um, so yes, I took this role of father Todd. I thought it was really cool. And, uh, Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Uh, I thought to play a priest was an interesting thing. You get to get in people's lives in different ways. Uh, oddly, what I really didn't get was a lot of screen time with my mom until, of course, the end, which we can talk about in a moment when they brought me back for her memorial which was we'll talk about that in a moment but um yeah it was uh it was uh it was just a wonderful little gig that i got to go in and do and be a part of the young and restless family which i knew would also mean something to my mom yeah mm-hmm. it would mean yes you know that thing is said you know don't get in for all the wrong reasons the girls the money all this stuff do it because you love the art and you wouldn't meet a lot of actors that would come from a series and major league and these things and go like, go do a soap opera for, you know, here and there. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a wonderful thing that ultimately culminated. And I don't know if this is jumping ahead in your thing, but you know, when my mom passed and they had to do their memorial service for Mrs. Chancellor, um, first they called me in and said, I want you to watch the last scene that she did, which nobody had ever seen. I saw it before it was ever aired. And she's walking up these steps and she turns around to Jill and or she, Jill says, can I get you anything else? Mrs. Chancellor It's a wonderful scene. If your people want to go back and watch it. Um, she walks up the steps. She gets to the landing where she turns the other way. And Jill says, can I get you anything else? Mrs. Chancellor. And this is unscripted. I think my mother, all she had to say in the script was no dear. And she takes two more steps and she turns around on the land. She says, good night. Those were her last acting words. Good night. Wow. And, uh, and then of course I, you know, so I saw that and they said, look, that we wanted you to see that. Are you okay with that? I said, oh, am I okay with it? That's, <laughs> that's, that's God sent you that one. You know, she sent you that one from beyond. Um, and then they said, would you like to officiate her, her memorial? service on the show which was really odd because we're in that park i think where they named it mrs chancellor park or something like that and i everybody is losing their shi when you finish the word and i have to keep it calm because i have to keep it together because i'm the i'm the guy who's meant to be the comfort so i can't lose my cool if you will and everybody else is just bawling and I looked out and I saw these people who loved her. It was tough. I bet. But I had to keep it together. It was great. But it, it's, you know, that's where Father Todd, you know, um, ended, I guess, that. And when Doug was not so kindly, I think, you know, mm-hmm. let go or whatever transpired. I don't know the truth on that. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, my relationship was definitely with Doug, you know, playing his brother. Um, and, uh it was a wonderful time. You know, we just um, have been talking to people about the 50th anniversary of the show coming up in March, and right. every single interview mentioned your mother um, and just the experience that each of these actors had with her unprompted. Basically, everybody brought up. Um, I can't remember because they invited me to come to that. And, I re- you know, I'm on the East Coast. There's so many things happen on the West Coast. It's like, you know, I try to put two or three things together to make it make sense to go. Um, mm-hmm. um yeah, they didn't invite yeah. me to that. I, I think I said yes, but 
figured so many people would go, they wouldn't notice that I wasn't there. <laughs> it would be nice to go and honor her. Yes. Well, well you know, I'm so sorry. I just wanted to say like, so I think that the, the through line of what people said is that it was the honor of their careers to work with and know your mom. Let, you know, we should just bring this in full about my mom. She was an extraordinary person. Um, you know, I'll share some things here that kind of tell you what she was after she passed. We went through all of her things and my brother would take this. And I, we did this thing. You take, you can have that. Okay. My choice. I take that. You take this. I take that. I take this. I take that. Um, I seemed to go for all the good stuff, like even the Emmys, which was weird. Like I want the painting that was up there. Okay. I'm going to, I'll take the Emmy for outstanding actress. You know, <laughs> I want the, I want the sofa. Okay. You take the sofas. I'm going to take her letters that she wrote. Well, in these letters, which I read later, you know, she, She's going to a very dark place. I mean, it's pretty well publicized. You know, I mean, to be a person who does a, a face surgery on camera, you know, they're they're not in their complete right mind altogether. <laughs> anyway, she was an extraordinarily complex woman. Um, and I know a lot about her past and growing up and her mom passed when she was young. So I think there were a lot of things that went into it. But um she uh, wrote these letters and in these letters on yellow tablets, I remember the middle of the night she'd get, she'd write drunk and she'd go, you know, please, God, please help me. Christ, please help me. Please save me. Save me. Tell me, guide me, guide me. And she'd cross that out. And then she'd say, F you, God, F you, Christ, F you, Jesus, you're not here for me. And she'd cross that out and you could see she went back to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. And that was really I mean, I'm surprised I'm as stable as I am because that was her life. She was this, she was this tormented between, I don't want to say good and evil, but um, just pain and pain and pure joy, you know, and she was a wonderful actress. So the pain she felt as a person was very deep, very deep, so deep that it got her into, you know, the kinds of troubles she got into, but her joy was equally powerful and Everybody who, you know, when people say that about her, it's not because, oh, she was just such a fun person. She told funny jokes. It was just up a depth of humanity. And humanity, we always think humanity means like, oh, a kind, decent person who gives to Red Cross every now and then. No, that's not humanity. Is somebody who's understands the despair, understands the, the the pain, understands the suffering, and at the same time can come to you and lift you out and be there for you and show you the joy and show you the guidance. And I think she was raw and real in that way. And that's what people respond to. Mm -hmm. You know, people, if you're just like, oh, he told the funniest jokes on set, or what a cad he was, or, oh, she was always so charming. You know, sure, you know. But they really respond to people that are real. And she was just she was just a real person. She had all the components. She just touched so many people in a real way and invited. She was one of those people who invited strangers into her. I mean, there'd be weird people coming to our house because she would just invite people she met once. She'd invite fans to the house. We used to have to tell her mom, it's cool, sort of, you know, but be careful. Uh, right. You know, she was an extraordinary, extraordinary force. And I find myself saying it more and more. And I often question, am I BSing myself? Or was she really that extraordinary? And then when I hear stuff, you know, um, am, I, am, I, am I overrating her because how much I miss her? Or when I hear stories like this, how she touched so many people, you know, for let me tell you something, for all the LA law and as big as it was, it was like, hey, you're Mrs. Chancellor's son. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd say that. 
seven out of 10 times it was that, no, you're Arnie Becker and isn't Mrs. Chancellor your mother. You're Mrs. Chancellor's son. That's really amazing. Oh, my regret was that I wish she were, there just might've been some more roles. You know, definitely. So, you know, definitely. definitely. For now, as older women are being appreciated on film. Agree. And I will say that pretty much, I could say every story is sort of the same about how she either reached out to someone on their first day and forged a meaningful relationship with them. So put the middies. Yeah, put the middies. So you know, yeah. it was it was really nice to hear. Um yeah, it's always great for me to hear it. And I've got her Emmys. So. Yes, you do. So there you go. <laughs> I put them um, on my desk. I kind of turn them to the side so you can't see Jean. <laughs> It's like, so people come in and they're people who don't really know us up here that we meet upstate New York. It's like, there's an Emmy on the desk. And it's like, I don't say that's my mother's. When I have to get to a place that's, I'm not just saying crying, but just get to a depth place, a depth that, you know, you want to take the time to get there. I will ask her to come and help me. And not once has she ever rejected me. And she is, I can feel her, you know, before I do a scene, I close my eyes and and she, I can just feel her with those long red fingernails stroking my back saying, just breathe, let it be there. You're okay. Let it breathe. Just be there, be the place, be the place. And then they say action. I go out and I, you know, I can turn it, but she's still coaching me. That's amazing. And I'm a huge fan of the resident and you hit it every time. So whatever, <laughs> whatever worked, it worked. Yeah. And those um, ones that were, you know, that were, especially one with Emily, I think it was where I was going to kill myself, you know, mm-hmm. um, she, my mom was there with me that beautiful. Um, and now, as you mentioned, uh, you were on General Hospital from 2004 to 2006 as John Durant, one of the many characters who have made a noble effort to take down Sonny Corinthos, but who was also revealed to be the biological father of Carly. So tell us about your General Hospital experience. Well, I'll, I'll have another Corbin chill out. I realize there is more. <laughs> there was one more. <laughs> there are more of these. these are, this is definitely my book. Um, uh you know, uh, a, a friend of mine was casting it and asked me if I'd like to do it. And um, and uh, I, again, without much reason, I didn't want to do a contract. I knew that. And they were very nice to not give me a contract, which meant some insecurity because you don't know when you're working. And and but I didn't I I, I was still in a place where I wanted to do another series. And and I also knew I was a little bit older than when my mom was for the Earn the Restless, but I had to consider it in the same way of like, if I do this, am I, is this it now? Am I, you? because once you get in at an older age, it's, and you're making a bit of money and it's steady, it's, it's, it's great. You know, you're, they don't give you outs to go do pilots and all, at least they didn't in those days. Um, and I still felt like there was another show in me, which turned into psych later on, by the way. Um, but I, um, I, I thought, yeah, I'll go do this. If you can, you know, if you can handle it being I'm available and I'll let you know when I'm not available for a period of time. And, and, uh, yeah, I got to, you know, uh, do this one over and go back into that world. And again, always, I feel a bit, I'm honoring my mother in that moment she had with me, which is saying, look, see what I'm doing? I'm doing this not for you because of you or that, but I'm just an actor. It's always been important to me that I'm just an actor. And whether I'm doing a soap opera, a big feature film, a TV series, a podcast with you guys, honest, and I'm not acting now, obviously, but um, but I just feel like it's just be in it, whatever it is. This is what, what we're doing to me is just as important as Major League. 
Mm-hmm. Honestly, you know, I don't know where it'll go or what it'll do, or maybe the book does get written out of this thing. Who knows? I can't tell you where the path goes again, getting back to where we'll end up with all this. But um, uh, yeah, I just decided to do it. And I remember I did something interesting. I can share with General Hospital. It's my, I thought if I'm going to do this, let's do something, Corbin, that let's make some use of it for your own growth and your own journey. And I did, I'm not going to say an experiment, but but certainly it's helped me like in the resonant and other things of saying, I am going to just be present because soap operas, for those who don't know, I mean, they're doing 50 and 60 pages a day. God bless the people can learn all the dialogue. It's very good for learning dialogue and they don't have, you know, teleprompters like they used to, or even cue cards for the most part. I don't know if people know they used to have cue cards that you could read um, kind of like Saturday Night Live or something. And um, I said, I'm going to really work on every time I am on camera, just being present, being really present. Meaning if you don't, if you have a stomach ache, you have a stomach. If you have a headache, you have a headache. Let John Durant have it. It may not be in the words, but it'll be interesting because something real is going on. You're, you have a headache. Okay. Not everybody who has a headache. You may have a headache now. I'm you, I'm looking at both of you and you're not going to tell me I've got a headache, but you may. And so it's working in you, but it's making it very real and very present, right? And I thought, I'm just going to bring whatever I do. I'm just going to just make this really present, really present every time. If I'm angry today, if I'm sad today, if I'm whatever it is, I'll let that be the underlying, then I'll say the words. And the good news was that because I wasn't such an important character that had to have this constant through line, I could be off on any given day. And why is he like that? And to me, it's just, well, he's interesting today. He's like, you know, pick some great Jack Nicholson doing something weird. You, know, you don't know why they're doing it because Jack Nicholson is great because Jack Nicholson is just so present, you know, being Jack Nicholson when he does it. And he can put on an army suit and say, you know, you don't know the truth or, you know. <laughs> Um, but he's Jack Nicholson there. So I really wanted to work at that part of my <laughs> acting repertoire, you know, to be present. It got to the point though, where it was like, and I don't really, I don't even know if I want all the words ready. You know, I just want to, I'll know them and I'll get them out. And there's an old joke in soap operas. If you can hit 50% of the words and hit your mark, you're good. Moving on. Hammer Braun, who played Carly at that point, pulls me aside one day. And I didn't know my words at all. I think it must have been a day I was like, really like, I'm just going to go with whatever happens. You know, <laughs> I'm going to feel my way through this. She goes, this may not be important to you. If she didn't know that I was actually very committed to it, this may not be important to you, but please come with your lines prepared. I was like, oh, and she goes, this is my job. And there was a sense there that I was, and I didn't really offer this up and I didn't really play it that way that, you know, oh, you've, you you think you're so gracious to come down to our level and be on a soap opera with us. You who've done LA law and you've done major league and movies. And that was never my intention, but it might've come off like that. And Tamara really put me in my place said, no, we learn our lines. It may not be important to you. And I remember her like, all right, there was another one. <laughs> and uh, a different kind of wake-up call because I was actually committed to what I was doing, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. That was my general hospital experience. And then, you know, I got killed. So. <laughs> well, RIP. Or so I hear. I don't know if I actually died. Somebody once said that. You died. I, I hate to be the bearer. <laughs> or the, the, the Are you sure? Why? Was there a funeral? <laughs> 
Um, there, I was well, shot. No, well, it's, right. it's soap I mean, operas. So theoretically, opera. yeah, you could be anyone yes. could be alive. Okay. Any, any minute now, John Durant could come back to Port Charles. Okay. Um, okay. So as as you mentioned, you had this, you know, uh, very impressive eight season run of, of Psych. Um, you also. Uh, you know, in your forays into producing and writing and directing the carpool guy filled with our soap opera faves. Um, But then in 2010, you wrote, directed and starred in the movie Rust, this very uh, personal project that leads into the docuseries that we're excited to hear more about. So Rust was inspired by your own spiritual journey after the passing of your father in in 2008. So tell us about that project and then the six part docu-series about the making of the movie Journey of Faith, which is streaming now exclusively on pureflix.com. Right. Great. Um, uh, I, uh, as you probably can tell, I feel like I've had a very blessed life and, um, and, you know, wonderful upbringing, going back to those early days that we talked about and L.A. law and all the things we've talked about. Right. And meeting my wife and somehow getting through all these places where I could have stumbled and fallen off. I kept moving forward all about my mother going back again to study and appreciate what you do. And everybody along the way, these little angels coming in, just saying, remember, remember, remember. And. So I get to the point where my father passes and I've had this incredible life and I'm in my midlife, if you will, fifties. And, um, my first experience with a a parent passing and uh, a day I was always, oof, like you don't want to think about you try to push off. And that's never going to happen. When your life is so blessed, you think that stuff's never going to happen to me. It's never going to happen. Maybe my parents or me or any of us, it's never going to happen. My father passed and I was left with this, just this wonder of like, okay, there's his ashes, his bag of ashes. This was my father, little league president, you know, guy who cheated on my mother and all, all the things he was, it's reduced to this bag of ashes. What is this? What, you know, I started asking myself the bigger questions about life. Now I was raised as a Christian scientist. That's where my father's family Jewish became Christian scientists, another whole story. Um, but, but I formed a relationship with God and Christ. Um, I like to I like to tell people when I look at I talk about God, so people who may not be so inclined, you know, you can t- say nature, um, you know, the, the wonder of things, which is in one of my other movies um, uh, that I did. I really discussed that uh, Beyond, called Beyond the Heavens, one of my earlier movies or one of my later movies after Rust. Anyway, uh, I, I I wanted to start writing. I knew I wanted to start writing more and directing more and taking a little bit more control of what I was doing. And I started having all these experiences of life and this training and all this stuff, wanting and playwriting back from college. I wanted to express myself. What do I feel? To this day, I still have it. And I'm still doing it. Um, but the I want to express this notion of like this loss of my father, what happens? And also this notion that I saw a lot of friends of mine leaving their marriages, marriages falling apart, midlife crisis stuff. And I thought that's interesting. I what what drives somebody away from each other who's had this love and family? What what would drives it happened to my own family, right? So what drives us away from one another when you sit there and say, till death do us part, 10, 15, 20 years ago, what drives you away? Midlife crisis. And I said, but I don't want to do the Ferrari story. You know, I don't want to do the red Ferrari and I'll get gold chains and 
young girls. I said, that's, that's, that's superficial. I said, what about a guy who's a pastor of a church? And one day he wakes up and goes, God, the world is all messed up. You're not talking to me. I'm not talking to you. You're not talking to me. No. Hello. I need some answers. This world is messed up. I've given up everything for you. I've given up my life for you. I haven't married. I haven't done anything. I've given my whole life over to you. And you're not here and answering my questions when I'm in need. And he ends up going back to his hometown, um, a little town that he came from. And his mother has passed. That's when he left town. He never became all the things his father wanted him to be. And uh, I wrote this film called Rust, and uh, it's about the rust that seeps its way into our lives, if you will, it kind of creates the rusty hinge. And um, uh, I, a long story, and again, if you think my stories are long, way too long to do here, how I got there, but um, let's just say there was intervention, divine intervention that took me to this place um, of a town of 1,100 people and uh, 11 churches or seven churches, 1,100 people. And I used, I fell in love with the town. I fell in love with the people. I was auditioning them for another movie that was meant to happen there. Never kind of came about what it did, but in a different version. And I said, look, I love everybody. I want to write a movie about this town for here. And the mayor said, oh, you want to do a movie here, eh? With all of us, eh? I said, yeah, I've met so many people. Everybody's so wonderful and real and and." And she said, well, what if we fund it? And I thought, okay, well, I'll stay another day or two and ended up writing Rush. My father passed and all those sort of get commingled into one another um, or confluent or whatever the word is into one another. And I ended up writing Rust and shooting this movie up in this small town, literally teaching people how to act. They've never acted before. They, they, they don't know what it means to make a movie. It's, movies just happen. They don't know Hit your mark, learn your lines, lighting this way, shoot camera here, and now you shoot the camera. They don't know anything. So I teach them everything. They teach them also how to produce a movie that we're doing up there. And somehow, well, I call it God, nature, again, whatever you want. The instinct, follow your path, was to get two documentary guys to film everything that we do, everything. Teaching and the acting, the auditioning, the this, the ups, the downs, don't. No, no, don't put any filters on. If it something gets crazy, get it all, get it real. Plus interviews that we did that you would typically do making a movie. I've raised like $260,000 in this small town of farmers, right? And, and we're going to go make this movie. I have no idea what I'm doing with it. And the story got out in the Hollywood Reporter. And I got a call from Sony Pictures, who at the time uh, was uh, had a faith division called Affirm. And they said, uh, Corbin Brunson, oh, you're a Christian filmmaker. This is wonderful. I went, yeah, sure I am. Sure I am. Why not? You know, and I didn't say why not. I just said, sure I am. And they said, well, gosh, we'd love to look at the script. And this is a day before we started shooting. I have no idea. I'm taking $265,000 of these people's money. And I'm making a movie for them. I'm not running away with it. I'm, I'm not making any money. It wasn't about money at all. At all. I lost money. Um, and But now I come in and go, guess what? Sony Pictures wants our movie. And they had a few things, notes that to make it a Christian film or a faith-based film. I went, good, good. Yeah, I can do that. Can't do that because it's part of the story, but we agreed, aren't we? Shot it. And so we had Sony Pictures release this film, but we filmed everything. And the movie did fairly, actually did for the budget, did fairly well. I mean, we've made a few bucks on it and they keep making a few bucks on it. The town, I'm able to send them a check every now and then. Um, 
But a couple of years ago, uh, and I put my mother in all my films and she was passed by the time we did this film. And I, she passed at that point. No, she couldn't come up there. So I put a photograph of her in the thing. She couldn't, she couldn't. Yeah. No, this was what, 2006. So she wasn't gone yet. I don't know. You probably know when she died. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> well, it was actually uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. 2013. Yeah. Okay. So, well, she was alive. Anyway, her photograph was in the movie. Um, Thank you. See, I don't, these things, I don't, I don't store this stuff. Um, That's what we're here for. What? <laughs> That's, That's what we're here for. Yeah. Thank you. When, when we write the book, it's going to be very important. <laughs> it is right. Uh, we have to get all the dates right. Yeah, right. Anyway, uh, so we, a couple of years ago, uh, we were sitting with the people now, Pure Flix, who are all part of the Sony. It's all sort of a big family, the way things are today, and. Um, we said, look, we got all this documentary footage. Let's put this together and let's create a series. And you can show the movie afterward. You know, it'll be this wonderful thing. Uh, the movie's actually not going to be available for about three more months on the Pure Flix platform, which, you know, I wish it were. You could watch all six episodes and go mm -hmm. right to it. But um, my producing partner put the thing together, took the hours. during. See, I think he had a lot of time during COVID to really put all this stuff together. And he did a tremendous job, found footage again, like I said, at the beginning that, you know, of me and my mom and dad and happy times and uh, just so many miraculous things happened during this, this making of this film. And all of us went, well, God, we, we didn't know where, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian filmmaker. The next thing I know, I'm like really starting to re-explore my faith. And we decided within this thing that this is my journey of faith. This is my journey, I guess, to repurposing my faith, re rediscovering my faith. And the movie, the making of the movie is what brought me back to my faith. And uh, and I will leave you with, I think, that in this world where we see so much crazy stuff happening and all the crazy things I've told you, my, you know, just stay true and pure. All those people who reminded me along the way, stay on the course, stay true, stay pure. Faith, faith. Faith is just that. It's faith. It's not like, ooh, religious. Faith is like, just have faith. And mm -hmm. that was taught to me to bring this to a full thing by my mother. That's really incredible. And let's just make sure for everybody listening, it is on pureflix.com. It is called Journey of Faith, a docuseries based on the movie Rust, which will be available in a few months for people to see as well. Yeah. But the docuseries is available. Now. But the docuseries is available now for streaming. Corbin, we have we there were so many more questions we could have asked you, oh, but no. you gave yeah, us we so much. Parts, so we need parts two through thirty thousand. Yes. We'll get uh, you we back. Do we'll do another part. Yes, we we'll do. We'll do a part two because obviously the book needs to be written. So um, yeah. anyway, we appreciate all your time today, and just thank you so much for sharing all your stories thank and you. your memories of your mom. And uh, mom, this is for you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Corbin Bernson for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Mm -hmm.